I know I said I was going to cover the Fort Retrio case this week, but I'm actually going to cover it next week because I started looking through the newspaper archives, looking into abductions in the Fort Worth, Texas area, and I learned that there was dozens and dozens of abductions and murders of young women around the same time that the Fort Worth trio vanished and was presumably abducted and murdered. I started looking into all of those, and then I came across two cold case murders, one of them having an update sort of recently, so I ended up covering those instead. So first I'm going to talk about a series of abductions that occurred in Fort Worth, Texas in the 70s, and then I'm going to go into the two cases that this episode is really about, and it'll all sort of tie in next week, hopefully. I also want to give a trigger warning because this case involves descriptions of sexual assault and rape. If you cannot listen to that, please do not listen to the rest of this episode. Okay, let's get started. In 1965, the city of Fort Worth, Texas ranked as the 20th most dangerous city in the United States. The population was exploding, causing residents to compete for resources and territory. This coincided with the increased racial tensions during the civil rights movement. Just two years prior, in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. led the Walk for Freedom through Detroit, the largest civil rights demonstration in American history. The Vietnam War was far from over, which led to an increase in the number of guns in circulation, making it easier for people to commit violent crimes. From 1960 to 1969, the violent crime rate increased 32%, and while Fort Worth experienced a slight decline in violent crime during the early 70s, it was still higher than the national average, and only dropped down to the 25th most dangerous city in the U.S. The manufacturing industry was also rapidly declining, while drug trafficking became a major problem. By 1979, the violent crime rate had reached 825.9 per 100,000 people, a 34% increase. To put that in perspective for us now, in 2020, the violent crime rate was 327.4 per 100,000 residents, representing a decline of over 50% in the violent crime rate since 1979. Fort Worth, Texas, like every city in America, has an abundance of unsolved cases. This isn't unusual for a city with an above-average crime rate and a population approaching 400,000 people in 1970. And while a handful of these cold cases gained notoriety, a great deal of them only live on in a digital archive of the local newspapers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On January 4th, 1973, the abduction of a teenage girl was printed on the fifth page of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. An 18-year-old girl told police she was abducted at gunpoint last night from the parking lot of St. Joseph Hospital as she was leaving after visiting a sick relative. The girl, who was found in her car in the 2200 block of Evans, said she was leaving the hospital about 8.30 p.m. when a man pulled her car door and forced his way in. She said the man, who had a pistol, first took her billfold from her purse, then, finding no money, forced her to drive to Evans Ave and stop behind a large building. There, she said, the man forced her to commit sodomy. 
then fled when a car pulled up behind them. Weeks later, a woman was abducted less than three miles away, this time by multiple men. A 22-year-old woman last night told police she was abducted at gunpoint and raped by two men about 8.30 p.m. The woman said she was walking near Riverside Drive and Davis Street when the pair pulled up beside her in a car and one of them stepped out with a pistol. She said the man forced her into the car and drove her to Glenwood Park, where both raped her. Roughly three months later, eight miles west from the previous abduction, a 20-year-old woman was taken at gunpoint. The woman said she was walking to her parked car in the 5300 block of Bryce about 9.30 p.m. when a thin man wearing a ski mask and surgical gloves approached her carrying a revolver. She said the man forced her to sit in the back seat of her car while he drove. The man made her partially disrobe during the drive, she said. Then after reaching the apartment complex on the west side, he forced her to dance around in the laundry room. After this, the man drove her back to the Arlington Heights area where he fled the car on foot. Just two days after this, four men abducted a young girl as she walked home from school. This took place less than four miles from the first two abduction sites I've mentioned. Police today were searching for four men who abducted and raped a 14-year-old girl yesterday afternoon. The girl, an O.D. Wyatt High School student, said she was walking from the school about 2 p.m. when the four pulled up in an old model station wagon and offered her a ride. She accepted, but the men drove past her destination and refused to let her out of the car. These men drove to a house believed to be in the Lake Como area where they raped her and forced her to commit sodomy. The girl said that after the assault, the four took about a dollar from her purse and her school books, then returned her to the area near the school. After her release, she called her parents who notified police. The site these men drove the victim to is less than two miles from the third victim's abduction site. So this fourth victim was picked up relatively close to the first two victims, then taken to a place very close to the abduction site of the third victim. Four months later, on September 11th, 1973, a fifth victim was attacked in a similar fashion. Police continued a search Tuesday night for three men who abducted a Bell Telephone Company employee in downtown Fort Worth Monday night and drove her to a secluded area where all three raped her. The 24-year-old woman said she was walking to her car when the three accosted her. She said she struck one of the men repeatedly with an umbrella, but he struck her in the mouth with his fist, and the three then forced her into their car. She said they made her lie in the back floorboard until they reached an area somewhere north of downtown where the rapes occurred. They then drove her back to her car and she drove to a service station and telephoned police. She said the men were all in their late teens or early 20s. This fifth victim in the string of rapes was abducted at a midpoint between the previous attacks. Roughly six miles away from both general locations where the four victims were abducted from and or taken to during the assault. Fast forward three months later to December 27th. A 20-year-old expectant mother told police she was abducted at gunpoint from a supermarket parking lot on East Seminary Drive Wednesday by a young, blonde-haired man who forced her to drive to a nearby Carter Park where he raped her. The woman said she had finished shopping and was getting into her car when the man approached and showed a pistol. She said he got into the car, pointed the weapon at her, and ordered her to drive. She said they drove into Carter Park, where the man ordered her to accompany him to a secluded area where the attack took place. She said the man then accompanied her out of the park and got out of the car on Seminary Drive. Police were searching for a suspect about 17 years old. The location of that attack was on the same road as O.D. Wyatt High School, where four men abducted the 14-year-old girl in May of that year. Less than a month later, on January 16, 1974, 
another teen was abducted from the same high school. A man wearing a ski mask ordered a 16-year-old girl to accompany him from the steps of O.D. Wyatt High School, then raped her and left her alongside a gravel road in South Fort Worth, the girl told police yesterday. The victim said she was about to enter the school at 2400 East Seminary just before 8 a.m., when a man wearing a dark ski mask accosted her. After warning her he had a gun in his pocket, he ordered her into a yellow car. The man tied dark cloth around her eyes, drove to a building, and assaulted her. Afterward, they drove some more while he talked about killing her, the girl told investigators. Finally, he made her sit by the side of a gravel road, warning her not to remove the blindfold until his car was out of sight or he would kill her, she said. She waited until she could not hear the car anymore, removed the blindfold, and ran until she came to Seminary Drive. She then went to her father, who works in the area, and he called police. A month after this, an abduction would occur on the west side of Fort Worth, just a few miles away from the location of two previous attacks. This case, however, would go on to become one of the city's most infamous cold case murders. Carla Jan Walker was a junior when she attended the Western Hills High School Valentine Dance. Her date was 18-year-old Rodney McCoy, a senior at the time. Later that Saturday night, after the dance had ended, Rodney drove Carla to the bowling alley nearby. They went inside briefly before coming back out around 12.20 a.m. to sit in the car and chat. Carla was leaning against the passenger side door, turned toward her date, when a random man suddenly jerked her door open. Rodney reached for Carla as she began to fall out, but was stopped by the man who pointed a gun in his face. Over and over again, the man told Rodney, I'm going to kill you. Carla started screaming as the stranger shot Rodney three times. Some of them struck his head. Fortunately, the gun turned out to be a 22 caliber Ruger, and the damage wasn't fatal. Rodney was able to punch the attacker in the face before being struck in the head by the man's gun. He recalled, quote, He pulled her out of the car and he pointed the pistol at me and shot again. I just passed out. One of the last things Rodney heard was the man telling Carla, I'm going to take you with me, sweetie. When Rodney came to, blood was pouring from his head and 17-year-old Carla Walker, along with her attacker, were gone. The attack happened so quickly, Rodney could only give a brief description of the stranger. A white man in his early 20s with short hair, wearing a light brown cowboy hat. Images and a description of Carla were printed in the papers as well. Her mother said she was 4 feet 11 inches tall, 105 pounds, with blue eyes and long blonde hair cut in a shag style. She was wearing a blue full-length formal dress, with white lace trim and a senior ring. The following morning, authorities began a massive search for the missing teen. Seven officers from Benbrook mounted horses and combed along the Trinity River, while a Fort Worth helicopter searched from above. By day two of the search, a dozen officers were working full-time on the case, including detectives from two police departments and the FBI. After a handful of officers searched the Lake Benbrook area on horseback again, a police chief told the press, quote, We didn't find a thing. We're just about at the end of our row. I just don't believe she's out here now. We've been over everything with a fine-tooth comb. On February 20th, two Fort Worth patrolmen participating in day three of the search discovered the body of Carla Walker. She was heavily bruised, lying in a concrete culvert by Benbrook Lake, eight miles south from where she was abducted. The county medical examiner estimated she'd been dead for two or two and a half days and had been sexually assaulted. Carla had bruises on her head, neck, and lower extremities. Her cause of death was strangulation, possibly manual strangulation by means of ligature. Her larynx had been broken by her attacker. 
There was no evidence of a robbery of any kind. The attacker had left her purse behind on the night of the abduction, and Carla was still wearing her rings, a watch, and a bracelet. Additional evidence collected at the scene included a strand of hair on a barbed wire fence nearby, and one of Carla's rings found 12 feet from her body. A western-type straw hat, similar to the one Rodney described the attacker wearing, was turned over to police a day prior. A couple said they found the hat submerged in Benbrook Lake, held down with a rock on the afternoon the kidnapping took place. The hat was being examined in the lab, but investigators said they didn't think it was related to the case. Because Carla Walker's body had been found, authorities could finally focus all their energy on finding her killer. Police were getting hundreds of phone calls a day with tips, and the reward fund had risen to $5,000, which equals about $31,000 today. The Western Hills High Student Council immediately met and created the Carla Walker Memorial Fund, and raised $400 within hours, which equals a little over $2,400 today. The principal told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, You couldn't even walk down the hall and see anyone crack a smile. It's hard to believe. This morning, the school was like a morgue. He added that most students wouldn't rat out anyone to authorities in most cases, but Carla Walker's murder completely changed their perspectives. The principal said, quote, it's like there are 25,000, 30,000 little detectives running around the city, and all of them are very, very interested in seeing the guy who did this come to justice. With six homicide detectives working on the case, they still didn't have a prime suspect. On Friday, February 22nd, 1,250 people attended Carla Walker's funeral. Minister Elton Dilbeck told the large crowd, quote, The coming of death is worse when it comes with startling alarm. Justice will come to all evildoers. Offenders must live with themselves, live with their consciences, and their consciences can lay on the lash. And most importantly, they face the justice of God. On the same day of her funeral, police announced that they'd interviewed over 500 people in connection to Carla's murder. A Fort Worth detective stated, quote, We don't have anything. We've been talking to people every day, all day long. Nothing really new has come up. On the other hand, the Tarrant County Sheriff's words were a little more hopeful about the search for this killer. Quote, We're questioning people at the school and we're investigating the vicinity of the bowling alley parking lot, trying to find someone who can identify the car or the man at the bowling alley. We don't have much to go on. We don't know if he's ever done this before. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram wrote that the conclusion about Carla's abduction is that she was alive and in captivity for more than a day because of her time of death. Authorities admitted that could mean more than one person was responsible for her murder, but there was no solid evidence to point one way or another. Fast forward a couple months later to late April of 1974. A 16-year-old girl drives to a bridge near the Trinity River to pick up her brother and a friend who'd gone target shooting. She stopped on the bridge and honked her horn to signal that she was there. A young man approached her car, and the girl asked if he'd seen two boys. He said no and walked away, only to return moments later wielding a sawed-off shotgun and force the teen into his blue and white pickup. The man bound her wrists with wire and taped her mouth shut. Shortly into the drive, the teen started to pretend that the tape was smothering her. The man then took one hand off the wheel to rip the tape off her mouth, but lost control of his truck in the process. The truck veered off the road and got stuck in the mud. At this point, the teen was sure that this man was going to kill her. So she decided to, quote, find a Christian response in him. She showed him her gold cross necklace and begged the man not to kill her. As soon as she did, the man untied her hands and told her to walk back to her car slowly. If she ran, he'd shoot her. And if she went to police, he'd find her again and kill her. 
Once the teen was back at the vehicle, she immediately drove to the police station. The tape that this attacker used intrigued police. It was sticky on both sides, the kind of tape that carpenters use. Two weeks later, police arrested 25-year-old Tommy Ray Neeland, a Sunday school teacher and mechanic who laid carpet on the side. Tommy was described by local police as a model citizen with no prior criminal record. He was an active member of his church, and Tommy's reverend told authorities, quote, We can't imagine him doing anything like that. Tommy's father was just as confused. He said, quote, I just can't believe this. He was always a good boy. After police interviewed him for three hours, they learned that Tommy Neeland was exactly the opposite. He confessed to three murders. In September of 1970, while living in Kermit, Tommy killed his next-door neighbor, a mother of twin girls, 27-year-old Nancy Mitchell. Police questioned him initially, but let him go after a lie detector test was deemed inconclusive. Nancy's skeletal remains were found roughly nine months later. During his confession, Tommy claimed he'd taken Nancy by gunpoint, used a knife to remove her clothes, and raped her. He then used a hypodermic syringe to inject air into her arm before fatally stabbing her with a butcher knife. After revealing all of that to police, Tommy then brought up another unsolved case to detectives. The murder of a teenage couple, whose bodies were found off a highway between Dallas and Fort Worth. In July of 1972, 17-year-old Mary Jane Handy and 15-year-old Robert Golson were on their way to a rock concert in Dallas from Kansas City when their car broke down. Tommy Nealon had pulled over and offered them a ride before taking them at gunpoint. He bound their hands and drove to a secluded area before raping Mary Jane and fatally stabbing them both. Tommy Nealon was found guilty in all three of the murders and sentenced to two life terms plus 550 years in prison. He quickly became the number one suspect in the murder of Carla Walker, but that was a murder he wouldn't confess to. After serving less than 13 years of his sentence, Tommy Neeland was released on parole in September of 1987. He moved to Heiko, Texas, a town with less than 1,300 people, with a woman he'd married a year prior. That woman had two children. A convicted serial killer was now their stepfather. Tommy was also able to start his own business, a dairy equipment service, until it closed in July of 1994 from credit issues. Weeks later, police pulled him over for an expired registration sticker. They found guns in his truck a violation of his parole. Tommy has been incarcerated since in La Mesa, Texas. He's currently 74 years old and is still eligible for parole. Carla Walker's family was never convinced that their daughter was the victim of Tommy Ray Neeland. They believed her killer was still out there. Shortly after Carla was abducted, Miss Walker started receiving repeated calls from someone she believed was involved. About the unusual calls, she said, quote, Sometimes they come every week, sometimes every two weeks, sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the afternoon, and whoever it is who's calling never says a word. So many strange things have happened since Carla died. In late November of 1977, three years later, a man walked into a Murfreesboro, Tennessee police station and confessed to Carla's murder. 32-year-old Jimmy Sasser of Paris, Texas was indicted the following January. A month before the murder trial was set to begin, district attorneys dismissed the charges, allowing Jimmy to walk away as a free man. As it turns out, the whole confession was a lie. After his release, Jimmy told reporters, quote, This whole thing is just embarrassing to me. To be honest with you, I was drunk and on dope when I did it. 
Something inside me just made me want to do it. I was just feeling sorry for myself and I didn't care if I went to prison or not. Jimmy said that shortly before making this false confession, his marriage had collapsed and he was depressed. So I guess this man was just really bored with his life and thought the best thing to do is confess to a murder he didn't commit and get Carla Walker's family's hopes up for nothing. Five months later on April 25th, 1978, an abduction occurred that was eerily similar to the Carla Walker case. 24-year-old Paula Jean Davenport left her parents' home at 7.30 p.m. to go bowling in East Fort Worth with her co-workers. Before departing, Jean told them she would probably come home immediately after because she was already tired. But when her mother woke up the next morning, Paula still hadn't returned home. She stated, quote, We knew it wasn't like her. She always called if something happened or if she had trouble. Everett and Ethel Puckett adopted Paula when she was 11 months old. She graduated from Poly High School and married her first husband in June of 1974. In November of the following year, they divorced, and Paula moved back in with the Puckets. She started working as a secretary for an oil equipment sales company, Hydra Rig Inc., where she joined a bowling league with co-workers. In 1976, she remarried and gave birth to her son, Shane. That marriage ended in divorce as well by May of 1977, causing Paula and her infant son to move back into her parents' home once again. In addition to being a working mom with an active social life, Paula was also a devoted sister to her little brother, Eddie. Ethel stated, quote, Paula was absolutely crazy about Eddie. I remember one time he was going to have his first date. We gave Paula $50 and told her to go shopping with him for a suit. She came home with an $80 suit, paying the $30 difference out of her own pocket. Five months before Paula disappeared, she received several threatening notes. One note taped to her car read, quote, We're going to get you, Paula. She brushed them off as a prank. Fast forward to April 26, and Ethel Puckett wakes up at 5 a.m. to find that her daughter hadn't returned home from the bowling alley. She told her husband, quote, Something's wrong, Everett. I can feel it. Ethel filed a missing persons report later that morning at the Hearst Police Department. The officers didn't take her seriously, though, because Paula was 24 years old and it had been less than 24 hours. By 9 a.m. that morning, Paula's silver Honda Civic was found abandoned in the parking lot of Brunswick Bowlerland. Her stereo had been ripped out, and a small 22 caliber bullet was found inside. There were several bloodstains on the seat, indicating to police that Paula had met foul play. Her father recalled, quote, up until that minute, I had hoped and prayed she had just been kidnapped or something. But that morning when my son Eddie and I spotted blood on the front seats of her little car, I knew Paula was dead and my heart burst. The Fort Worth Star printed a physical description of Paula Davenport shortly after her car was found. She was described as 5 feet 6 inches tall, 115 pounds, with long brown hair, green eyes, and a dark complexion. She was last seen wearing blue jeans with red, white, and blue stripes on the back pockets, and a white, long-sleeve blouse. Two days later, a 48-year-old man hauled a cedar tree he'd cut from his own yard to a dumping location. Around 6.40 p.m., he drove into a heavily wooded area near John T. White Road and Loop 820, just 200 feet north of Interstate 30. Among the dense brush, he found the partially decomposed body of Paula Jean Davenport, roughly four miles away from the bowling alley. She was face down, her blouse had been torn, and her jeans were draped across the bottom half of her legs. An autopsy determined that she'd been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the abdomen with a 22 caliber weapon. 
the first shot had been fatal within seconds. After roping off the scene, authorities made plaster casts of tire tracks nearby. They would later learn that this was actually left by the man who discovered Paula, not her killer. The medical examiner said he could not determine if Paula was sexually assaulted, but claimed there were indications that her attacker had tried. Within a few days, a special team of five investigators was put together to focus on Paula's case, as well as other unsolved murders in the area. This was due to the fact that Jean had a very active social life, and the case was receiving lots of attention. On May 7th, the Fort Worth Star provided an update from authorities. Investigators spent Saturday sifting through reports from persons who believe they may have seen Miss Paula Jean Davenport's silver Honda minutes before she pulled onto a bowling alley parking lot from which she apparently was abducted April 25th. So far, one investigator said, most of these leads have provided no clues in the case. Police believe she may have been forced from her car in the parking lot of an East Lancaster bowling alley minutes before 8 p.m. Investigators have found no one who witnessed an abduction that evening. Homicide Lieutenant Coy Martin said a group of about 30 police trainees was sent to the area where the woman's body was discovered to search for any additional evidence that might have been overlooked. Investigators said apparently nothing of any great importance to the case was found. Trainees primarily were looking for Miss Davenport's purse, which remains missing. Police thought they had a break in the case when a weapon turned up near the bowling alley. Quote, we got information about a pistol found across the street on a restaurant parking lot, Martin said. When a test firing was made at the gun, Martin said the crime lab determined the gun was not the murder weapon. He said investigators will continue talking with acquaintances of the woman, hoping for a break. By the end of the month, that critical break would come. Investigators found the man they believed murdered, Paula Jean Davenport, but they couldn't put him behind bars. There simply wasn't enough evidence. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Homicide investigators said the 25-year-old suspect who lives four blocks from the bowling alley where Miss Davenport was fatally shot failed two lie detector tests. The suspect, who was questioned by detectives on May 2nd and again on May 11th, reportedly lied when he told police he had not been in the bowling alley parking lot on the night of the murder, lied when he said he did not kill Miss Davenport, and lied when asked if he had disposed of the woman's body. Police sources said the suspect also lied when asked if he owned a 22 caliber Saturday night special, the kind police believe was used to kill Paula Davenport. This suspect turned over three of his guns to police for examination. Of course, the bullet recovered from Paula's car wasn't a match to any of them. When police started questioning him about an RG-22 pistol, the suspect, quote, got to lying so bad we changed the subject. This man was questioned within two days of Paula's body being found and was described by police as being acquainted with Paula. His name is never mentioned in this article, but the prime suspect, authorities say, is Paula's ex-partner. I'm only going to refer to him by his first initial, R. R allowed police to examine his vehicle as well, but lab tests failed to show proof of blood in his car. This led authorities to believe he may have used another vehicle to transport Paula's body. R had an alibi for his whereabouts the night of the murder, but police said there was a half-hour gap R could not recall where he was. One detective stated, quote, 
There is no doubt about it. The man would have had enough time to kill Davenport and dispose of her body during that half hour he couldn't account for. The newspaper article goes on to say, quote, Police think the man suffers from serious mental disorders which have caused him to block the events of Miss Davenport's slang from his mind. When questioned on the polygraph, the suspect consistently denies any knowledge of the woman's death or any circumstances surrounding it. But police say he is tripping on the lie detector test because his subconscious knows the truth and is forcing his conscious mind to lie. Detectives also sought to take the suspect to Dallas, where he could be questioned after being injected with sodium pentothal, or truth serum. The suspect agreed to this, but his lawyer reportedly balked at the idea and prevented it. Investigators said the suspect probably would remember the details under the influence of truth serum because the chemical would free the mind of any memory blocks. There is no doubt about this as far as I am concerned, a detective said. The man has serious mental problems which may have sparked the murder. I think he was driven crazy by the woman's rejection of him and killed her after careful deliberation. From other evidence gathered in the investigation, police said they believe the suspect planned the slaying more than a week in advance, carried out his plot, and tore her clothes in an attempt to make it appear his victim had been slain during a sex act. The suspect has no police record and unsuccessfully applied to the Fort Worth Police Department in 1971 to become an officer, sources said. Right now, we need a witness. Someone who saw something in that bowling alley parking lot and who is willing to come forward and help us, the detective said. Someone had to have seen something. You can't just shoot someone in a public place like that without witnesses. What we need is someone to step forward and help us with a piece of information that can help us crack this case. If someone saw a car leaving the area, for instance, we could check the registration and that might lead us back to our suspect. Or something else might help provide us with the physical evidence that we need. Four months after this article was published, the Fort Worth Star dropped another bombshell revelation. They titled it, Death Witness Could End Parents' Nightmare, by Victor Drix. Somewhere in Fort Worth, police say there is a 12-year-old girl who can help solve a murder case and let Mr. and Miss Everett Puckett start living again. As far as I'm concerned, I stopped living the day she died, Puckett said. The parents of Paula Jean Davenport are sitting in the living room of their home, passing a photo album back and forth discussing the death of their adopted daughter, as they have done every day since her bullet-ridden body was found April 28th in a heavily wooded area. I just don't think there is anything else that could hurt as much, sighed Puckett, 64, a crew chief with American Airlines. It's just hard for both of us to accept. We know it happened, but we lay awake at night wondering why she is dead and her killer free to roam the streets. And I'll tell you this, knowing who her murderer is hasn't made things any easier for us. If I weren't a God-fearing Christian, I'd get my gun and kill him. I just want to keep depending on God, Miss Everett said. I have found great consolation in my religion. This has brought us closer to God, and I know we may never see it, but Paula's killer will be brought to justice someday. That someday may depend on that 12-year-old girl, who, police say, was sitting in a car in the parking lot of a bowling alley at 8 p.m. April 25th. She was waiting for her mother to return from the bowling alley. The little girl saw two young men approach a silver Honda Civic in which Paula was sitting prior to entering Brunswick Bowlerland to play on her company team. She saw Paula stand up and argue with one of the men when she recognized him. She watched the man pull a 22 caliber pistol, push Paula up against the front of her car, and fire a single shot at the left side of her chest. She watched the man run around to the other side of Paula's car, open the door and pump another bullet into Paula, 
who had fallen behind the steering wheel of her car. She saw the two men carry Paula's body and place it in their vehicle. She watched them rip the stereo out of the dashboard of Paula's car in an attempt to make it appear that robbery was the motive for the crime, and she watched them drive away. Two days later, James Butler made a grisly discovery. He found Paula's partially decomposed body in a heavily wooded area near John T. White Road and Loop A20. She was laying on her side with her arms crossed and her legs touching, clad in a blouse which had been pulled over her head, a brassiere and a pair of blue jeans thrown across her legs. Her underpants were missing, but her ring and necklace were still on her body. Fort Worth was wondering if a sex maniac was on the loose, perhaps the same man who killed several other young women during the past few years, crimes which have remained unsolved to this day. The author goes on to talk about the fact that Fort Worth police put their best homicide detectives on the case and put their all into this investigation. They interviewed dozens of people, followed Paula's daily habits, and got to the point where they couldn't legally do anything else. They knew who killed her, they just didn't have the evidence to prosecute him. The 12-year-old who witnessed Paula's murder would have been enough for a conviction, but her parents would not allow her to speak with investigators, so basically the only hope in bringing about justice was squashed. And this next part of the newspaper article details how the investigators found out about this child witnessing Paula's murder. An Eastside woman told an off-duty officer several details of the shooting that led him to believe she might have additional information valuable to the ongoing murder investigation. What the woman told the officer indicated she knew exactly how the shooting occurred, David said. Her information was very accurate and whoever told her about it must have seen it because there is no other way she could have known what she did. Davis questioned the woman for 45 minutes, May 5th. She provided him with little additional information, but left him even more convinced that she knew more than she was saying. I felt that she was going to tell me what she knew several times during our conversation, but she said she had given another woman her word not to identify her. The woman was hauled before a Tarrant County grand jury June 8th, where she said she could not provide additional information because she heard what she did in a beauty parlor. Investigators believe the woman was a friend of another woman who bowls regularly at the Brunswick Bowlerland and who left her daughter outside in her car the night of the murders. We need that witness, Davis said. With her, if she will just come forward, we can arrest our suspect and have a good case. Without her, we don't have anything. Okay, pay close attention to this next part because it's pretty telling that police weren't the only ones suspicious of R, Paula Davenport's ex-partner, the number one suspect. Quote, the morning police found Paula's car at the bowling alley, the suspect's own parents searched his room but found nothing. A friend of the suspect who works in a used car lot and has a somewhat shaky but passable alibi may have provided the suspect with a used car, police believe. The suspect claimed that he and another friend attended a party that night and that he called his mother every hour on the hour. Investigators checked more than 400 Tarrant County gun dealers in the hope they might be able to find a record of a sale of a 22 caliber pistol to the suspect, but the search was fruitless. Police theorized the suspect was unable to cope with Paula's rejection, planned the crime at least one week in advance, carried out his plot with the help of a close friend who was friendly with Paula and knew her movements. They think the men ripped her clothing and stole her car radio in an attempt to make it appear that Paula had been killed during a sex attack robbery gone awry, but proving that in a court of law is another story. The suspect's lawyer had made it clear to police he will consider any further contact from them, short of an arrest, harassment. Until a witness steps forward, Davis says, 
Police are unable to make an arrest in the case unless some unforeseen developments occur. And this next portion of the article gives more insight into the relationship between Paula Davenport and her ex-partner, R. Apparently, R was known to be incredibly abusive and cruel. I never liked that boy, said Everett, recalling how the man suspected of killing his daughter used to mistreat her when the two were dating. Paula would suffer beatings at his hands, Miss Puckett said, but her daughter was so much in love with the suspect, she could not leave him. When the two would go out on dates, the suspect would park his car, and when he came back, if someone had parked too close to his car, he would take his car key and make deep scratches down the entire length of the offending car. He did the same thing to Paula's car on several occasions. The pair dated steadily for several months before Paula refused to see him anymore. He would take her money, her mother said, beat her, embarrass her in front of her friends, be disrespectful to her parents, and used drugs. But Paula loved him. When the two broke up, Paula began frequenting the corporate image disco, and the suspect was so jealous, he once dragged her out of the club by her hair, beat her up, and told her to stay out of the place because it was his club. On another occasion, Miss Puckett recalled, he was so jealous of the fact that Paula was dating other men that he beat her up and told her if he couldn't have her, no one else could. I did everything I could to stop her from seeing him, Everett said, but that spoiled brat always had his way with her. She was religious up until the time she met him, and from there on in, she began drifting. I knew he was a bad influence. Homicide detective C.R. Davis was haunted by the fact that they couldn't arrest Paula's killer. In September of 1978, four months after the murder, he told the Fort Worth Star, quote, I have always been able to disassociate myself from cases and not get personally involved in them, but this case has just given me many sleepless nights. I keep wondering if there is something I could do now or something I might have done differently. I go back over my notes again and again and reach the same conclusion. I did all that I could. I might be able to do more, something else which just might crack this case, but I just don't know what that could be. This is one of the few cases that bothers me so much. The only case I can compare this one to is that of Carla Walker. The murder of Carla and Paula shared a lot of similarities, or rather, coincidences. They were both young females abducted at gunpoint from bowling alleys, whose cases went cold despite a thorough investigation. However, Paula's killer was snuffed out within days. It was a former partner, someone who knew her very well. Carla Walker's killer would turn out to be the opposite. In the spring of 2020, 45 years after the teen's murder, authorities released new information, hoping to generate new leads. They published a letter written by an unknown person that was delivered to a detective working on Carla's case. Parts of the letter are redacted. There's a censored name, and then it reads, quote, Killed Carla Walker in Benbrook. P.S. It is hard to say, but it is true. Authorities told the public, quote, The author of this letter is encouraged to come forward and speak with detectives about his or her knowledge of the murder. It is the hope of the Fort Worth Police Department that this person will bring valuable information that may bring peace and closure to Carla's family after 45 long years. Carla's parents have since passed away, but her 57-year-old brother, Jim, is still in Fort Worth fighting for a resolution. He told reporters, quote, I feel like the hand of God is in this. This will be solved. This needs to be solved for Carla. These folks are earnestly looking for justice for Carla, and we're not going away. Detective Leah Wagner and Jay Bennett had reopened the case two months prior. Even though this case was nearly half a century old, they had an advantage over previous detectives. DNA testing. Forensic scientists were able to recover a full DNA profile from Carla Walker's bra, 
When they uploaded the DNA to CODIS, they didn't get a match. When they turned to GED Match, the genealogical database used to catch the Golden State Killer, this narrowed down their suspects to three brothers, one of which had been a suspect in Carla's killing. In April of 1974, Glenn McCurley was interviewed by police because he had recently purchased a 22 Ruger, the same weapon used in the abduction. They then learned that Glenn was a truck driver with a criminal record for car theft, living less than two miles away from the bowling alley. He wasn't working the night of the attack or the next day, and his wife had been out of town. When police asked to see the gun, Glenn claimed it had been stolen while he was fishing, but that he didn't report it because he had served prison time. I found an article detailing Glenn's prior conviction when he was 18 years old. In February of 1961, he stole a 55 Pontiac from the parking lot of a bowling alley. He was sentenced to two years in jail for that. Fast forward to July 2020, and police need to confirm that Glenn is in fact the killer. They collect trash from his bin outside, send it to the lab, and boom. It's a match to the DNA found on Carla Walker's bra. A week later, investigators sat down to interview the now 77-year-old Glenn McCurley. He allowed them to swab DNA from his mouth and basically retold the same story he had in 1974. He claimed he didn't know Carla and that he had never killed anyone. Six days later, it was determined that the DNA from his mouth is a match, like police already expected. Glenn McCurley was arrested for capital murder and given a bond of $100,000. A year later, in August of 2021, the murder trial began. Audio from his interrogation was played in court, and Glenn can be heard confessing to Carla Walker's murder. He told detectives that the night of the abduction, he'd been drinking. He claimed he parked in the parking lot of the bowling alley and heard Carla screaming. He then walked over to, quote, help her out, and managed to pull her away after a tussle with her boyfriend. Glenn denied raping and strangling Carla, but after being pressed by authorities, he started to sob and stated, quote, I guess I choked her to death. The following day, Glenn McCurley changed his plea to guilty and was immediately sentenced to life in prison. While the family of Carla Walker was able to obtain some sort of delayed justice, the same can't be said for relatives of Paula Jean Davenport. A decade after her murder, detectives were trying to track down the now 22-year-old woman who witnessed it all. Now that this woman was legally an adult, she didn't need her parents' permission to speak with authorities about what she saw that night. Everett Puckett, then 74 years old, told the Fort Worth Star, quote, I'll never get over it if I live another 40 years. His wife added, quote, We just don't want to see it die. I'm not going to give up trying. Everett Puckett passed away 10 years after this article was published in 1999 at the age of 85. His wife, Ethel, passed away at the age of 96, in August of 2016. Even though no one has been convicted for Paula Davenport's murder, she's not listed as a cold case on the Fort Worth Police Department's website. I think that's about it. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.